about 3 a.m., started reading some books on talk radio, stumbled into Anthony Cumia's autobiography. It's terrific. It's called Permanently Suspended, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of Radio's Most Notorious Shock Jock. Obviously, that's a bit of an exaggeration there in the title. Here's some highlights from this 2018 book. Uh, Patrice O'Neill, the, the great black comic, once said that Anthony could access funny faster than anyone he'd ever met. And he talks very honestly about his life. There's no pretense. So compared to the the gurus and the live streamers and the pundits that we've been decoding over the past few weeks, like Anthony Kamir is fair dinkum. He's dinky die. He is straightforward. He doesn't pretend to be something that he's not. He doesn't pretend to be laying a tapestry of meaning over the universe. He doesn't make their exaggerated claims for his galaxy brain and his revolutionary theories. He's refreshingly honest. And so he's also refreshingly honest about his love life. And he talks about how he's married, but he's got a girlfriend named Jennifer who was quite sexually adventurous. And the first time they had intercourse, poor Anthony Camilla came home to his wife and he had the smells of passion all over him. And he knew that if his wife saw him, she would smell that he'd just had sex. So he was driving a Baja Bug at the time, which had engine trouble. So he pours gasoline on myself, reaches underneath the car to get oil and grit all over me to mask my infidelity. I go home and I say, son of a gun, car just broke down. I finally got it started. Don't even get near me. I'm a mess. And went and jumped in the shower to wash off the gas, the oil, and the vagina. So pretty good stuff there. Pretty other stuff from Anthony Camilla. Okay, uh, a teacher in San Francisco is not very happy. So, Hello, everyone. This is Peterson with Sandy's. Um, I just got punched in the fucking face right now by some guy that was pissing on the street. And I'm really fucking pissed off right now. I, I, don't, I can't believe I live in a city where people just piss in the street and come punch you in the fucking face and get away with it. Guy just ran off. They're probably not going to find him. I, I'm fucking fed up with this goddamn city. It's like, I can't just be outside and just running a fucking business without getting punched in the goddamn face. So I'm pissed off right now. I'm really fucking pissed off right now. Um, I, I don't know. I just need to vent. I got to figure out what to do, but... I wonder what uh, type of person punched you in the face and ran off. This is fucking bullshit. Like, it shouldn't be this way at all. Like, this isn't how our- Was it a, a Biden voter, for example? Was it a member of a sacred minority group that you're not allowed to criticize? City should be. I hope they find the fucking guy. Yeah, I'm fucking pissed off. So I'm sorry that I'm venting to y'all, but... Yeah, I, I don't know what to do. It's like, at what point is it too much where you just, like, can't be on the street and tell some guy to stop fucking pissing and get hit in the face? So, um... Yeah, I'm frustrated. I'm really frustrated. I hope that something will come of this. Like I said, I hope they find the guy. And strong. I'm just, I'm really mad right now. And he's uh, really, really mad right now. And you know what? He's going to come back here a thousand times if he has to. Because that bloke, homeless bloke who was urinating in the street, well, when he looks up in the sky, he's going to see a broken down, bashed in, very angry and upset face like this looking down at him. Now, should uh, good Samaritans just give up? This is Gavin McGinnis talking with Anthony. Add yourself to the list of casualties because they don't care. There's no reasoning with with these people. So they'll just turn and beat you up. And that's exactly what they did. This dunce. He's lucky he wasn't stabbed. Oh, yeah. But Conor McGregor, Tyson Fury, like, those guys might be able to take two of them. Maybe. They're going to, they're zombies. Yeah, yeah. There's eight of them. They just swarm you. You're all, there's no possible winning whatsoever. And they don't have any line like, oh, well, we'll punch him, but. 
won't kick him in the head. Yeah, they're not we'll going kick by, him in the head. Right. Sansbury rules. Marcus says Lavinsbury rules. Yeah, he's down. That's one on one. Yeah, they 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 they're not going to be like well. I have a knife, and I'd love to stab this guy, but I'm thinking about the consequences, and, yeah. you know, he is a human. And they don't think that way. You can't think that they think that way when you uh, have this this fantasy that you're going to help somebody. And then he's on the show, too, and he's like, I just, you know, I couldn't stand there. And he's like, it's not too bad. I watched an interview with him on one of the morning shows over there, and he's like, it's, it's not that bad considering. And, you know, I just can't stand there and watch. Yeah, you can. What were they doing? It was an old man, and they were, like, shitting in his hair or something? Light him on fire or something. <laughs> what is this? Putting story? mice down his shirt or some shit, <laughs> They were young thugs, like uh, off his eyelashes, like the one Bernie gets, like the one Bernie gets yes. shot. Uh, so the only way to do it is you travel yeah. in a pack of twelve guys. Yeah, you're in a suit and a briefcase. One of your buddies, all jujitsu guys, mixed martial arts boxing, right. right? They're all monsters. One of them is an old lady with a babushka on, yeah, got lipstick and sunglasses. <laughs> the other is like a Chinese guy who's just like minding his own business with his newspaper, and you're scattered all over right. the place. Yeah. But when shit goes down, the babushka comes off, everyone comes to life. And That's everyone. the only, way. and even then, yeah, the odds are pretty high. You're gonna get <laughs> fucking stabbed in a weird armpit spot. Right, it goes into your heart, it's and like, you oh, he got stabbed. That was it. He collapsed and died right there. Yeah. Why bother? The staff on that morning show over there at Fox, it's like, you know, this was one in the morning or something. He goes, oh, where were the parents? And, and that got a little too close to maybe specifying the race of this group of kids at one in the morning. So the weather guy goes, uh, well, you know, who knows? Maybe they, they were working. They need extra money for the house. I swear he said that. <laughs> I swear he said this. Zero percent. Zero point. Zero zero. Oh, well, she was working at the restaurant. Yeah, and yeah. And what I do at the flour mill is I take the shift from 12 to 8. Yeah. It's seven percent more oh, per hour because it's on the overnight. No one wants the overnight. Right. But I worry about my kids. And the kids are out at 1 a.m. beating white people up because the parents have such a work ethic to take care of the kids. Like if there was. A family that was working overnight to support the kids. Those kids would be chipping in. They'd be oh home my asleep. god. They'd be going to church. Right. They'd be on the right. basketball team. But that's not what it is. The, the parent, by the way, whether it's the mother or the grandmother, uh, it doesn't give a shit what these kids do at one a.m. That's why they're out. Not because the parents were working. Father doesn't. First of all, they're implying that the people are white. They're black. We've seen of the purpose. They're all black. They're black. The father doesn't exist. I will bet my life on it. Of course not. Uh, the mother might be around. It's probably <laughs> the grandmother. Grandmother. And she doesn't give a flying fuck. Even if you showed her the footage yeah. of this beating, she'd be like. So what's this about? What do you want to do? I have trouble with this child all the time. And I understand. He's got a spirit in him. He got he a got, fire in him. Yeah, yeah. He got a fire in him when he got mad. Right, right, right. But he's a good boy. I mean, yeah, he's a good boy. Isn't <laughs> he could have been something. Uh, if, if it wasn't for the system, right. he could have been a scientist. Right, a scientist. But instead, he's punching this dork weather guy in the <laughs> fucking face. Oh, man. Those are some hard, hard but uh, fair truths. All right. This is uh, Fox the backdrop News. going on with the, the controversy. They're, they're saying that he's a big time racist because this was at a courthouse where there was a lynching in 1927. Uh, the, the production company who made the video said, hey, look, there's been so many things shot here. Hannah Montana, Mario Lopez movie. So why the controversy now? I think it's interesting because it, uh, is, it, it's so revealing and, and, and it doesn't reveal anything about Jason Aldean or the people who like his music. It's revealing about the people and their, the, the, the people in the, the, the media uh, and in places like New York or D.C. who have this extreme prejudice about small towns and people who live in small towns. And, uh, and, and you know, th these are people who and, and another time where this sort of came about was when uh, with Donald Trump's uh, Make America Great Again uh, slogan. All these people thought that was racist. And it's like if you think that, the, that the, what was great about America was that it was racist, uh, you have a Donald problem. You have a problem. problem. The rest of us don't have a problem. Um, but this whole notion of living in a small town. The idea that you have personal responsibility to your neighbors, the idea that you would never step over a body in a small town, you do it every time you walk out of the building here in New York City, the idea that you don't have people leaning up against a, a wall uh, shooting drugs into their veins and people just walk by and, and ignore it, that's what makes it a small town. And that's what I think this song is talking about. And that's why you don't see a lot of the ills in a small town that you see in a place like New York City. Well, Andrew, let's listen to Jason Aldean. This is what he said. He was addressing his critics. Let's take a listen. 
Hey, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's one thing I feel. I feel like everybody's entitled to their opinion. You can think, you can, you can think something all you want to. It doesn't mean it's true. I mean, it's true. You know, Joey, to Charlie's point, you know, you've got this music video. It shows you the summer of riots, all these things that are happening in American cities. And you contrast that with the patriotic Im images of soldiers and farmers and, and families in small towns. I mean, is that where the criticism is coming from, of exposing that? No, this is all about controlling a narrative. So, so they're, not, they're not silencing him. You can go listen to the song anytime you want to. They're telling you what the song means by interpreting the nuance of it. And that's, what, that's what's really scary. These are the lyrics. Sucker punch somebody on the sidewalk, carjack an old lady at a red light, uh, pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. He says, uh, cuss out a cop, spit in his face, stump on the flag and light it up. These are all things, you know, the flag obviously protected by the First Amendment, but all of these things are, are real true instances that we've reported on here on this channel over the last year, two years, three years. The videos he uses are real true things that happen, and he's, he's espousing the view of millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Americans that say, don't bring that here. Don't think that we're going to get you out with cashless bail. Don't think that we're going to tell you, oh, you're a poor victim. You were mistreated. You were raised poor, so you can act, treat us that way. That's not the position, the posture, or the belief of people in small towns, and they are scared to death that Americans might understand that, that Americans might agree with that. Well, and the media outrage, I mean, it just keeps. Okay, much better content on uh, Gavin McGinnis here, Anthony Cumia, compared to Fox News, at how to resist hotties after getting famous. Good question. When you finally hit radio. 73. 73, 73 years, years young. I'm 96 now. <laughs> yeah, no, I was 30, 35. Yeah, old. 30s. Yeah, before that, it was all just construction work and bands. But uh, yeah, like, yeah, I'll try this. Whatever. See what happens. Is the second part more fun? Uh, construction and, and bands can be pretty fun. Oh, it was fun. It was fucking fun. There's a lot Crazy of coke fun. and shit with construction yeah, and yeah. bands. You know what's weird? I had no <clears throat> responsibility in the early days. Once I got into radio, I had certain responsibilities. I had to, you know. Right, you can't be late. Couldn't be late. Didn't I you have a jet up. ski with the construction? And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. So, yeah, you're, just, on weekends, you're going, meow, 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 up and down the line. Weekends, weekdays, when I was supposed to be at work. <laughs> I would do shit like that. Yeah, I didn't give a fuck. And then, uh, yeah, when I got into the radio thing, it was like, oh, I, I have to do it. But it was so fun, I didn't give a shit. You got to be there at 6 a.m. So, well, no, I was doing afternoon drive then. So I had oh, okay. to be there. It was three to seven, oh, okay. uh, and it was relatively close to where I was living um, in, in uh, Massachusetts. Oh, there I was in Ashland, and it was somewhere kind of close. So it didn't really matter. It wasn't like I had a big commute into the city or anything. And then uh, doing it was fun as fuck. It was great, and the element of fame that started coming in. And we were going to concerts and signing autographs, taking pictures, and girls, and fucking uh, you know meeting Aerosmith and introing bands on stage at Mamakin and all the bars by Fenway on Lansdowne Street. It was a fucking blast. Uh, the fucked up thing was though, like I was in my mid thirties. Now a lot of these people were in their 20s the fans were in their late teens early 20s was like the key demo of yep. AAF alt rock at the time it was fucking you know huge and the the program director and general manager like just both and it was both of us because Opie was only two years younger than me they're like just keep your age you know don't talk about your age and uh Anthony don't mention you're married or anything I'm like I could do that believe me <laughs> take this ring and fucking which you did cap in the gap <laughs> with my wedding ring fuck that which I did yeah uh and yeah, but that just started like there was no way my marriage would last through that. I think she actually figured if we did a threesome, maybe I'd stay a little longer. That's what I always figured, yeah. It was a Although the first one was, like I said, it was before I had any money or fame or, or anything. Um, but the second one, that was when it was like I had so many fucking opportunities. It was crazy. In Boston, it was really nuts. We would go. We'd had a, a steady gig at Club Cadillac every Wednesday night. We'd go there. And uh, I made friends with all the Kahlua girls. They were the girls that would go around Kahlua drinks to everyone. We had the little fucking dresses with Kahlua on it and shit. Uh, promotion girls. And they were fucking, all of them were beautiful. And we'd hang out and drink and shit. And they're like, oh, you want to? Gonna hang out. We're gonna we're gonna go skinny dipping in the lake, and sh they say shit like that. And I'm like, I gotta I gotta wait. I can't. I gotta go home. Well, being famous is great if you're single or you're cheating. Yeah. And girls are involved. Being famous when dudes are involved is 
Not good. You are a dude-involved famous guy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. So are you. Yeah, no, yeah. I know now. Yeah. I used to be somebody. <laughs> when, oh, when, when, I had, when I had Rage Against the Machine tickets, believe me, I was a popular dude. Right, but your fans were 50-50 male-female. Oh, no, not time. even 50-50. They were mostly dudes. Yeah. Mostly so, dudes. Yeah, we both had the same problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the girls at the time, because we were all those bands, like we were playing fucking, we went, because we had a promotion at a Bush concert once in at the Worcester Centrum. The woohoo, guys. Uh, Bush? Bush was, uh, no, no. Bush was a... Uh, Swallow, swallow. Was that Everything's Zen. Everything's Zen. Everything's Zen. I don't think so. Glycerine. Glycerine. <laughs> Glycerine. He was married to Gwen Stefani for a little while. He was, uh, uh, what the fuck was his Gavin? name? Gavin. Gavin. Gavin Rossdale. Yeah. Yeah. He was a Tiger Beat sensation. Girls fucking, I swear to you, when he walked out, it was a hiss, a screaming sound that made your ears hurt. A <laughs> girl just yelling for this motherfucker. Gavin Rossdale. Gavin Rossdale. Yeah. And this motherfucker... The girls that would come to these shows were beautiful, and they wanted to, you know, we were promoting the show. Gavin, but I could fuck the guy who announced the show. Yeah. That's something. When, like, I'm not going to say that perhaps I could work out where you could meet Gavin. Oh, right, right, right. Which you couldn't. (laughs) Yeah, like with Motley Crue, they'd have to suck off the roadies and everything. Right, work their way up the hierarchy. And then you suck off, like, four roadies. Yeah, yeah. You're, like, turgid with cum. You got to undo your top button, and you finally get to Motley Crue, and they're like, you get Mick Mars. Oh, what happened? Fuck. Or you suck up four roadies, and they go, well, they're right through that door, and you open it, and you're outside. <laughs> oh, man, some, uh, some good stuff here. Let me, let me pull It's weird, too, because I'm sure you were the same way, but when I was a kid, from like 14 to 34, I was collecting records, reading the back, like knowing all the labels. Everything yeah. was perfectly alphabetized, totally obsessively collecting. I had my records, my CDs, cassettes. Everything was in different things. If anyone touched anything, I'd fucking have a heart attack. And, of course, when girls come over, they're just like, oh, yes, they want to paw through it. Putting a fucking card, a fucking sleeve back in the shelf without the record in it. Oh, uh-huh. wait, wait. And it's just yeah. somewhere randomly. It's not even out. Well, I'm never going to find that again. You just threw that into the abyss. Oh, uh, no. Now, you go to their house, and they have like six records on top of each other. Yeah, not in a, a sleeve or anything. No, just on, on, the, on the turntable. Making <laughs> 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 the what, what sound. <laughs> they just have like a fucking cylinder of CDs. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh, what have you done? And then one day, you're just like, Shh. and music, I have zero interest. Yeah, I really don't care. I enjoy some, obviously, older music that sure, I, but like, would you put on inducing. The Who? Like, would you put it on? Do you even have a CD player at home? Or an anything player? No. Yeah, do you have, like, Apple Music? Yeah, I have, so I'm all digital. Now. Would you put on, like, Apple Music, The Who? Play. <sighs> if I was on a plane? Maybe you would listen to music oh, on a plane. May, if I watch a movie. Only, on only if I was going to sleep. I will sleep with fucking music on. Ah. And and it could be you know I have music on my phone. But it's a lot of you know Alice in Chains and the Chains, like Chains, Peppers and oh, Rage. Yeah, another one of those Chains. Jesus Mary Chain, Jesus <laughs> Jones, Jesus. Everything Alice but the uh, Boys Against Girls to Men Without Hats. Yeah, yeah, Men Without Hats. <laughs> I do have a lot of like eighties and nineties. I, I started listening to a lot more music when, when I walk. So I used to always listen to audible books and sometimes podcasts when I walk. Now I'm really enjoying listening to music because when I listen to music, I, I get to choose my mood. Right, so. And I never want to be sad, so I just want to be happy, or I want to feel close to God, and so music is just a tremendous boon. Right, but do you I just I lost just, interest? Though. I don't listen to it anymore at all. Mm. And when I do listen to it, I get these earworms that are borderline. Have to go to Bellevue. <laughs> they don't go away. Well, there's a lot of lot of great music. I, I don't understand how you can get bored with music, but let's get back to the book here by Anthony Camilla. Talked about girls would call up when he was on with Opie. On uh, Boston Drive Time Radio, girls would come down to the studio. We did something called the Blue Tarp Cabaret. We'd put out a blue tarp, and the girls would get completely naked, and we'd throw maple syrup on them. So you've got these disgustingly sticky girls who are hot. They'd just be smashing each other with cakes and assorted pastries. We'd get the food products from local bakeries and advertise these bakeries like a real plug. These cakes were supplied by Mama Pop's pastries. 
He never said we were married or had girlfriends, which ticked off my wife terribly. I didn't want to be a married guy on a young rock station. So whenever we went out to do these station appearances, there were constantly girls around us. The program director, Dave Douglas, was always a bug up our ass. He once said, you know what you should do? Take a picture who you envision as an audience member. Who do you picture? Find a magazine with a picture of someone who resembles this person you have in your mind. Put that picture in front of you on your mixing board so that when you're talking into the mic, you get an image of who you're talking to. So we went on the air, started talking about this meeting with the program director, how what he said was so ludicrous and idiotic. Then we found a swank magazine, cut out pictures of women squatting, and we posted the pictures. Here's how we picture our audience, a bunch of filthy vaginas. We knew how to stretch stuff out where we could and just barely squeak past FCC, meaning Federal Communications Commission rules, we'd use the first letter of curse words, I'd F her in the A and wipe my D on her curtains. Uh, one day on April Fool's, they made up that the mayor had been killed. Just getting this news and the passenger in the mayor's killed car who was also killed was a young Haitian boy who wanted to lead up the fact that the mayor had been having sex in the car with this young Haitian boy while driving around and the car had spun out of control. That was our April Fool's. They want to go home to my wife. We would drink and get hammered. All right. And uh, all the other blokes, they could bring girls up to the studio, no supervision. All right. The workplace here at this Boston radio station was like a frat house with constant drinking, smoking, drugs, and sex. I used to get laid on my desk in my office. Penthouse did a big article and photo shoot with us, which was a dream come true. I'd been jerking off that magazine my whole life. Our marriage lasted nine years. The only thing that kept me in it that long was that I found out early in the first year of my Marriage that my wife was partless, but I wanted to do threesomes with hot chicks. Then circa 2002, Howard Stern had a particular family situation of very private nature. So Howard Stern at this time, 2000, 2001, 2002, was trying to put out the image that he was a happily married family man, but he wasn't quite so happily married. We alluded to his problems on the air in a very ambiguous way, and it got back to him. He was quite upset. So they got hauled in by Mel Carberson. Then they would have uh, people call in and report on live sex acts at famous sites in New York. He had a point system with certain bonuses. If the guy st stuck his up her, the team was awarded a two-point conversion. The harder the location, the higher the point value. Central Park had a lower point value because it was easier to find a place to bang in than a church, which had the highest point value. We took calls during the contest. We got one from Chaperone Paul Mercurio. Within a second, he's telling us, we're here at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Cathedral, and he's doing a two-point conversion. Knew that for listeners to hear he was effing her in the A at St. Patrick's Cathedral was great. Really, Paul, what's going on? Well, we're here by the front door, and he's pumping her really hard. Oh, wait, there's someone coming over to us. Now, again, we could have said run, but we choose to get the play-by-play, -play asking who's coming over. We just wanted that dialogue between whoever was coming over and Paul, who was going to attempt to justify this couple having anal sex by the front door of the most highly regarded religious landmark in the United States. It was one of the security guards from the cathedral. They were now listening to the back and forth between Paul and the security guard. Security guard's like, what's going on here? Why are you two pulling up your pants? Oh, don't worry, it's just a radio contest. So I kept going with the security guard until the police came. Once the police came, all bets were off. All right, Paul got handcuffed. They arrested Paul and the couple, who sadly didn't win the contest with their overall scores. So in the news, Virginia couple was arraigned after they were arrested for allegedly having sex in a vestibule of St. Patrick's Cathedral, while parishioners worship nearby. Loretta Lynn Harper, 35, of Alexandria. Her boyfriend, Brian Florence, 37, were charged with obscenity in the third degree and public lewdness. And uh, Anthony Camille writes later on in this book, looking back, if there was ever an addiction that Opie and I had shared, 
is that need to constantly top ourselves and make our show the most talked about. We wanted our ratings to always go up for our listeners to be rewarded daily with our insanity. It's inevitable we were going to get fired. The thread finally broke and the piano crushed us after the St. Patrick's Cathedral incident. Now they got paid out on their three-year contract. So for two years, they couldn't work in radio. Now the station tried to bring David Lee Roth as a radio host. and He's like one of the worst people ever in radio. He would do nonstop rambling about 18 different topics at a time and then throw in a bozzy, bozzy bop. Uh, OP is still in trouble with people to this day because of what he did to one homeless guy, Andrew, on the air. Andrew offered us a piece of cake. OP just stomped on it with his foot. Poor guy was sitting there and saying, I paid for that cake. I earned that cake. OP didn't care as long as it was good radio. And one of our funniest bits was with the comic Patrice O'Neill. We called it N-Word versus Nazi. So at this time, actor Denny Glover had made his plight known publicly that he couldn't get a cab in New York City because he was African-American. So Patrice was on the show we were talking about, and he said, yeah, nobody wants to pick up an N-word. I was like, hey, I have a Nazi helmet. I'll put it on. You stand upstream from me. We'll both try to hail a cab to see if the cab driver picks up an N-word or a Nazi. So the first cab blatantly passes by. Patrice stops for me. Second cab stops for Patrice. The third cab hedges his bets, goes between us. The next one goes for the Nazi. So Nazis won over the African-American talked about their fans we had passionate fans who were really into it they knew how we treated each other on the show comics constantly busting each other's balls we brought the audience into what we were doing they felt like they were part of the show only negative to this was that they felt they were also part of the stand-up show they felt entitled to heckle the comics immersively which sometimes made the shows a nightmare you had to take the bad with the good so philly's own comic dom irira was booed off the stage it was brutal he just disappeared he was sure shocked next up was bill burr So there's a digital clock facing Bill Burr that would count down their time on stage. And so this is Bill Burr in Philadelphia, like just giving it straight back at the the Philly fans. It's one of the most incredible uh, rants ever, just spontaneously developed. Okay. You can all suck my dick. Show up for you fucking 
standing on your tongue and some other horrific shit happens that involves cancer. To all of you, 11 minutes left. 11 minutes. I hope somebody takes a fucking beer stein and just slaps you on the back of your zit-infested fucking shoulders and your awful man-tit tank tops. I hope that happens to you. I hope the glass fucking digs into your fucking shoulder blade. And then I see you afterwards. Hey, how's it going? Enjoy the fucking show, that's great. And I grabbed you by the fucking hair, but you don't have any. Did it really have to come to this, people? Did it really have to come to it? I really hope all of you run into all those black people that you love so much here in Camden. I really hope that happens. I hope there's a line of all of you guys getting fucking carjacked and they take out their big black dicks and they just shove them right in your fucking mouths, each and every one of you, and somehow they just keep repeatedly coming right in your fucking eyeballs. Until it builds up so much that your eyes, they fucking crust over, you can't see shit, and somehow there's another dick in there for you to suck. Ten minutes left. Okay, so here's uh, Bill Burr talking about his uh, Philly rant. Okay, that's just uh, more. Let's see what else we got here. I saw a dude, and, and this was, you know, you always hear about this as a policy, but you don't expect it to hear it from a human being. Yeah, he was like, he's a pilot, and he was our age, white hair, and he goes, if I had to give advice to uh, uh, people out oh, there. I saw this. I would say. You need to hire less white males. Yep. No, white people, especially males. Do we have people that like me? I think we do. We're dead yeah, set in our ways. Today. And if you want to talk about diversity and what can help, what, what can help us in the Air Force, then the one thing we got to do is get away from Because we're all the same. White males. Because he goes, They're the we're all the same. We think the same way we do. Okay. And we need diversity. It's like, why would you need to think differently? You, you think about flying a fucking plane and you know what to do in the case of an emergency or no emergency or just flying the fucking... Isn't it a very? I, I've never. I want plane, something different. Isn't it a very uncreative thing? I don't want to disparage uh, airline pilots, but I know when there's a problem, you got to come up with something crazy. And you got to go upside down, like, <laughs> like flight or, or something. Do something crazy. But generally, you want a very routine like flight. A happens very monotonous. B very monotonous. Like I want you to enjoy monotony. Yes. Everyone wants monotony on their flight. Yeah, monotony is ideal. Crew. Now, I know the talent of being a pilot is to be prepared for non-monotony. Yeah, it's what you do in that moment that isn't and that's great. Uh, normal. Uh, yeah, like Sully, we've said that, of course. D d two engines. Birds hit two of your engines, knock out both of your engines on takeoff, one of the most vulnerable times in a flight. Right. And he looked around and said, 
you know, I could try to make it to this airport, Teterboro, go back to LaGuardia. And he's like, nope, the river. I got to land on the river. Now, he could have tried to make it back to LaGuardia and wiped out so many fucking apartments in Queens <laughs> or, or, or go to fucking Teterboro and destroy Hoboken. Uh, but the motherfucker went. The river. That's the most logical. Play, and did it, and everyone walked out of there alive. Zero people died. And you know what? That motherfucker probably for his entire career never had to do anything out of right. the ordinary. All right. Here's our altitude. Here's our heading. And you get there. All right. Here we landed. All right, everyone. Have a Hey, nice. Line. Thank you for choosing uh, us. Do you have that clip? Yeah, watch this. this and, uh, douchebag. you know, uh, the, only, the only really guidance I put out there for him to consider is stop hiring middle-aged white people, especially dudes that are pilots, because... Honestly, we all think alike yeah, too much. Yeah. You want and that? And if we're going to increase diversity and being inclusive, and for crying out loud, let's back it up with a, you know, let's make the rhetoric meet the reality. What a dumb thing to say. Everything's air travel up until very recently has been the safest fucking thing, especially in the United States. The safest way to travel out of any travel, and it's because of the routine, the regiment, the whole. We want people thinking the same. You want people following protocols and rules and checklists and all the shit that makes air travel safe. And then why? For no reason. No but, reason. But political correctness and, and pandering and posturing, you got to throw diversity in? Why? Does he honestly think that'll make it better? We're at the greatest. We've already seen it get fucking, unbetter. Unbetter by We've adding diversity this, the, the, to the ground crews. But in Nepal, right. we keep seeing this. I don't understand, by the way, oh. if if white male pilots became the, the norm, which they are, and then Irish male pilots became the norm, and we I kept guess. having a pilots, we kept having a, a drinking thing, and there was a couple uh-huh. crashes where we did the blood alcohol level oh, boy. on the white male Irish pilot. Yeah, I'm like, ooh, that's pretty bad. Yeah, that wasn't great. That was one point. <laughs> yeah, and then you had these super sober, astute, incredibly talented black female pilots. There you go. Who were dying? <sighs> get in the game. Only we could get in. They kept doing all the simulations and just like pew, perfect, pew, 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 upside down. Pew. Oh, okay. I'm open to that. If yeah. that's the case, it's not it's the, the case. fucking case. There is a, 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 an education, a commitment, a discipline. There's so many things that have to go into someone being a, su- a successful pilot. Aside from just, here's what you do to take off. Here's how you fly. Here's how you land. There is a, a persona of a pilot. There's a personality. It's very disciplined. Your life has to be disciplined. That's why you see these motherfuckers walking around the airport. They are dressed to the nines in that uniform. That nice Everything's white pressed. mustache. You've never seen it with a bad haircut. Their no. fucking hair is done. No like it's part of an image and a, a, a discipline that they need to have. Yes. You can't just throw people in that have gone through a course on how a plane flies. And and this douchebag thinks it would make things better to bring people in, not based on that, but based on just let's bring some different people in. Guaranteed he's divorced. He's got a 29-year-old new girlfriend, <laughs> and he wants to get on the map. Oh, he's impressing Showing, her with his – Yeah, yeah. That, uh, he wants to get invited to dinner parties. Tolerance. Yes, yeah. yes. I should probably tell the folks at home that I've been traveling with Anthony quite a bit, and uh, we've been on the same flights. Yes. We both do the same thing. We oh. hear – uh, towards the cabin, yes. and then one of us will go, Sully? Uh, yeah, Sully. Sully. We'll see a white mustache and just be like, Sully. White mustache, a little, you see a little gray hair at the back of the hat, and you're like, there you go, I'm good. I feel great. I can relax. I can relax, enjoy my beverage. Lizzo is not driving this fucking right. plane. And I don't want her to. And and I do, I do a bit about it on stage, the whole idea that 
uh, Biden talks about and his administration talks about how it's the most diverse administration. We've been hearing for two over two years now with him that the uh, uh, administration has more of the first this and the first that. And I was like. Who's flying Air Force One? Let's look into that. Leslie Jones. Yeah, she's up there. It's exactly what this guy said they don't need. Yeah. Every Air Force One pilot. <laughs> everyone. I looked. Dude, I don't just spout this shit. Right. I looked and researched Air Force One pilots since the first Air Force One. And by gum, they've all been middle-aged <laughs> white guys. Middle-aged white guys. Well, I remember that with Y2K. The president of China back in, uh, was it 2000? Yeah. Yeah. He said, uh, I want the head of transportation to be in the air at 11.59. Brilliant. At midnight. Right. So let's see how authentic this Here's how confident you are. Y2K shit is. That's and he was brilliant. believe it or not he he did some overtime uh-huh. to make quadruple yeah, yeah. sure we're gonna make sure that, that plane works yeah that at least the air traffic shit is gonna work <laughs> at least the plane I'm on <laughs> but it's yeah if you're so into just diversity for the sake of diversity then why hasn't Air Force One ever been piloted by a woman of color they have to be just as qualified. No one's stopping them anymore. He all, all, all he has to do is say, I want my pilot to be a woman of color. I bet they would say, no, you're out of your fucking mind. Maybe I want like, Leslie Jones or uh, someone who looks like Leslie her. Leslie Jones. Yeah. DL Hughley, which is what she looks like yeah. now. I want DL, DL Ugly. DL Ugly piloting my plane. They'd be like, yeah, yeah. okay. Like, dude, we and don't then care he'd if you get on died. Air Force you One. how much this plane costs? And he'd see Sully and he'd be like. What the yeah. fuck is going on? Hey, middle-aged white I guy. I made it very clear, and they're like, oh, sure, we're still working on it. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. next flight, ideally next flight. Obviously, there's a lot of paperwork, and we have to make sure we screen. Uh-huh. Why isn't it? Him. Why isn't that? If diversity is great, and this guy's saying, you know, enough white men, uh, middle-aged white men, uh, why isn't Air Force One piloted by, if they're just as capable, just as capable, maybe in some instances uh, even more, why the fuck wouldn't you put them behind the controls? Oh, oh. No, thanks. There he is. Here, here are our pilots. There's the here Leslie Jones Air behind One Air Force pilots. One. Here are all your Air Force One pilots. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, these are your guys. They all look oh, exactly the Jiminy same. Oh, Cricket. Oh, no. Oh, look at this guy. Oh, here. this guy's in a blimp for fuck's sake. Where are the hidden you know figures? How long ago this was? <laughs> yeah, where are the hidden figures to fucking fly? What a load of shit. Okay, some great points there by... Anthony Camilla and Gavin McGinnis. All right, this is what I, I fear turning into. Yeah. Oh, you want to be different so bad? You want to be different so bad? No. I would much rather fit in and be liked. But there's something wrong with me psychologically. Why would Why would anyone think that there was there was uh, something wrong with that that good man? Okay, let me get my act together here. Finish off. I'm about halfway through the. Anthony Camilla book. So what else did I read very early this morning? Radio Vox Populi. Vox Populi meaning the voice of the people. Talk radio from the Romantic to the Anglo-Saxon. So it was about talk radio in the United States and contrasting that with talk radio in Italy. So it talks about the movie and TV star. He's distant from the people because he is a star. But the star radio talk show host perfectly embodies supposedly the thinking of the man on the street. Uh, personalities apparently appeal to listeners more than music. And then this one critic of talk radio says, there's something absolutely perverse for lonely misfits and amateur information distorters waiting on hold for an hour or more 
just for the opportunity to be abused by a loudmouth host, a host often equipped with no discernible credentials other than a face, fast-paced patter. Talk radio is a carnival. It's an amusement show. It is a fancy parade as a fact. The uninformed opinion is championed as thoughtful commentary. Groundless innuendo gets the same respect as investigative journalism. Talk radio drones as a noisy waste of time. Just broadcast a bunch of malcontents yelling at each other or a bunch of blowhards impressing each other. The medium is not the message. Problem with most talk radio and its technological variants is the literal message. Demagogic slurs and lies designed not to influence policy, but to gain audience share and hence fame and fortune. I think that's pretty fair critique. So this uh, bloke with experience in top-level talk radio says, we consider callers disposable foils for our acts. We're convinced there will always be another caller, and there always was. So the key to success in talk radio is boosting ratings. Serious discussion of serious topics is anathema to popularity. Ludicrous discussions attract a wide spectrum of listeners, especially those who are killing time by listening to the radio. So why do people listen to talk radio? Because the human voice has tremendous power, charisma. People like to hear a voice. An emphatic, funny voice gets people to listen. The voice is a friend. People come on by to hang out. For almost all of American talk shows on a commercial radio stations, the host first acts as the picador and the caller as a confused ball. Quickly, the host morphs into a matador. So the picador, I would assume, brings the bull out. Then the host morphs into a matador and hangs up the phone that serves as the coup de gras swordplay. Points of view aren't the only drivers that cause the frenetic pace and tone of most commercial talk radio in the States. Right, with all the commercials. So you can have stations that play up to, at least in the 80s, they would play up to 26 minutes of commercials an hour. Right, so the host must desperately need the audience to stay through the commercials. So you must constantly feed the audio clickbait. The burden is always to keep things lively, controversial, engaged, outrageous, tabloid, and funny. Hysterically funny or hysterically outrageous like Howard Stern. Callers are usually picked for their nut factor. Anyone who's going to subject themselves to potential host abuse after waiting on hold for an hour is probably suspect. Talk radio, as practiced by the right wing, according to Al Franken, is the monetization of resentment. From the listener's point of view, the talk radio host is a credible relational partner who puts them in a privileged position to enact uncertainty reduction processes. That's what we're doing here on this show, right? We're enacting uncertainty reduction processes. The positive relationship between the creation of an intimate relation with a subject and that subject's ability to track and trigger mechanisms of self-categorization and identification, right? Which reduces uncertainty regarding your own identity and your own views through identification with a group and a host, right? That's what goes on in live streams and in talk radio. So I love that. What we're doing here is engaging in uncertainty reduction process, right? We are able to self-categorize and identify. Now, what do we do with the vast information overload that many of us feel? Right? We need that information filtered, and we need to withdraw from that flood of information. And it's helpful to have a particular relationship with a host or a guru who can offer information and viewpoints modeled on the community of which the listener fits in. So in the 1980s, ABC Radio did an enormous amount of research mid-1980s, and they showed that there was an opening for what it termed non-guested confrontation talk radio. 
and they recruited a Sacramento, California radio host to play the lead role, Rush Limbaugh. Like that non-guested confrontation talk radio. So th- this is what it means. The show centers around the host and his views with few or no interviews. Instead of confronting an actual person who can argue back, the host plays a soundbite from the targeted person and attacks their recorded point of view. That leaves no opportunity for the opponent to respond, so the host is going to always win the argument. So talks about the three levels of AM right-wing talk radio. The top tier was headlined by Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, and Michael Savage. Second tier had lesser-known hosts on less powerful stations. The third tier was mostly comprised of quasi-Christian stations owned by Salem Media. So from Italy, we get the insight who commands the story is not the voice, it is the ear. What drives people's interest is not so much the narrator, but the ability of the story to enter the intimacy of the listener's life and turn into personal history. Italians never entertained a particularly intense relationship with radio, right? TV was a much more invasive, powerful, and seductive. Radio is the most personal form of mainstream media. Talk radio is its most personal subset. No host becomes popular by being the most well-spoken, the most politically astute, or the most scholarly, right? There's, there's no money in being right. The money is in being interesting, right? The common trait found in all successful talk radio hosts is a host with a personality that makes the show desirable to consume. So from an objective perspective, one could hardly imagine a better fit for talk radio than former New York Governor Maria Cuomo, who was a spellbinding orator and a riveting interview guest. But at the press conference heralding his new talk radio show, he was asked about his goals, and he listed his number one goal was to educate. The show lasted a year. Right, the best answer to that question is to conduct a show in a way that draws people in to hear the host's views and the views of others in a compelling and entertaining fashion. Right, Rush Limbaugh succeeded because he presented content in an upbeat mood, an appreciation of humor, and he had the showman's gift. You don't need to know anything to work as a talk radio host. The enterprise is entirely based on engaging entertainment, peppered with factoids and truthiness, and driven by emotionally charged hype. It's a great caffeine-driven formula that keeps the listeners tuned in and flipped out. So Anthony Camille is a nice change from the pundits and gurus we've been listening to. So what are some of the traits of the secular guru? It struck me. We've never talked about this, Chris, but... You know, you just reminded me that actually a lot of big advances in like genuine intellectual advances do involve like a linking together of somewhat disparate fields. Um, so, you know, um, electromagnetism, yeah, mm. unification, understanding that electricity and magnetism were two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, and a guy called James Clerk Maxwell figured that out. Um, and so this does happen from time to time. So I, I think the, the underlying theme of these, of these facets in the gorometer is that these are, these are false versions of the real thing. Like the real thing is hard to come by, happens extremely rarely. Um, someone like Maxwell is operating within like a well-established paradigm and is, is often getting help from colleagues and yeah. is communicating and writing with colleagues, all of whom, or most of whom, usually very quickly recognize what they've achieved when they achieve it. This is very different from what how gurus operate and what and there, there tends to be an output as well, right? Which is not just long form podcasts. podcasts. Um, that so that that's a distinction as well. But okay, so the next characteristic is anti-establishment sentiment. Um, now again, you'll find this in a lot of different areas, but you will find it in an extreme version in most of the secular gurus that we look like. And this is not just saying that institutions uh, have flaws and that you know you you shouldn't just trust everything that you hear on the news or from politicians. It's that the mainstream is 
almost entirely corrupted, always wrong. It can't deal with the real issues. Institutions are lying to us. And when the mainstream is right, it's right for the wrong reason. So maybe climate change is happening, but it's not for the reason that climate scientists say. And a lot of this is to set up the uh, the gurus, the secular gurus, as an alternative source of epistemic authority, an alternative source of knowledge. And you can see this explicitly from the fact that they often set out to establish alternative institutions, usually ones that orbit around them, like uh, Jordan Peterson creating the Jordan Peterson Academy. Uh or uh, Dennis Prager creating Prager University. And uh, Laponius makes a great point. Look at this. This morning, 40 knew nothing about Anthony Camilla. Here he is a few hours later decoding the man. Absolute genius. And I assure you, I have not spent uh, any time since, since uh, 7 a.m. and pretty much the start of this show learning anything more about Anthony Camilla. So this is very much a decoding, a decoding on the fly. But uh, Anthony Camilla, very nice change from... Right, these overblown, you know, caricature, uh, self-obsessed, you know, self-important uh, gurus and, and pundits. Right here is the famous N-word versus Nazi challenge. All right, there's a cab. He's confused. He's stopped. He has passed. He has passed. Oh, <laughs> oh Nazi! I know, Nazi! Why didn't you? Why didn't you? Why didn't you pick up? Pick up the African gentleman. You stopped to pick up the African gentleman, but but then you put. Do you see that? I I'm a Nazi. You didn't stop with the Nazi. I stop. I stop. And you see me stopping, right? I stop. And I see maybe you chose the Nazi brother. You chose Nazi over nigger. You chose the Nazi brother. Wow. You don't pick up a fucking Nazi! Okay, so who would be more likely to commit a crime against you or to be an obnoxious uh, passenger? Who'd be more likely to be law-abiding? Who'd be more likely to tip you, right? A national socialist or an African-American? Just asking questions. All right, here's the cab. He's slowing down. And he has uh, picked up Patrice. Yeah. Damn it. Talk to the brother. I thought he was going to pass him. I thought he was going to pass him. Thanks for stopping, man. Appreciate that. Listen, there's a Nazi that needs a cab right there. You're going to pick up. No picking up. No picking up Nazi. All right. All right. Two brothers, too. We're tied. We're tied. Two black guys. All right. We're tied. Schwoogie one, Nazi one. (laughs) Got a couple of cabs coming up. Oh, here comes one. All right. Here comes one. Let's see what happens. And... Oh, man, now it's a runaway. Now, well, well, the cab is kind of in the middle. Ask the cabbie who he wants to pick up. He doesn't know what to do. Wait, now he's pushing toward Anthony. Who who do you want to pick up, sir? Whoever comes you to push toward. Would you want to pick up someone doing a Roman, a white guy doing a Roman, or an African-American? Yeah. I I, I need the cab. Is Is it the nigger or the Nazi? Whoever comes first, Whoever comes right, you kind of hedged your bet. Nah, he. Let me tell you something. This gentleman hedged his bet and pulled right between both of us. What is that? A tie? And then he kind of. All right. Cabby's coming up. Cabby's coming up. He speed. Another one that's kind of in the middle. Patrice, what do you think? Patrice, what do you think? 
He got me. He wanted me. He was, he was oh, going. he wanted me. He was going. And then he thought the... Uh, he was going. He was fucking taking a Nazi. Totally taking the Nazi. He looked like a Nazi. Did you see him? Wait, I'm going, I'm going to the judges. Nazi or Swoogie? Nazi? That was so Nazi. That was so Nazi. I'm going to pull this out. I'm going to pull this out for niggas. Wow. You better pull this out. Nice. You better pull this out, man. My money's on it. Cab is making the left onto 57th Street. Here he goes. He is... Oh, boy. Oh, no. Thanks, man. We're on... Damn. Oh, no. we're, going to, oh. Oh, we're going to game seven. Yeah, it's good. It's going right to game seven. All right, hold on. Don't hit yet. Go. Go. Game on. Go. Nazi versus the Schwuggy. The cab. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you for picking up a Nazi before an African-American. Did you realize that, sir? I didn't know that. You didn't know that? You didn't see him with the gold chains and everything? Gold chain or silver chain. Did you notice I'm wearing a, a German Nazi war helmet and I gave you the Nazi salute as a hail? Did you see me first? Oh, and there he goes. Did you see me first? Ask him, ask him. Fuck him, I need a motherfucking cat. <laughs> the Nazis win. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I mean that—that's pretty funny. <laughs> okay, but uh, let's get you know, a little bit of uh, highbrow content here be- before we go back to the humor at the University the of gurus. Austin, at Texas University, around the you know heterodox figures which have yet to release any uh, like continuous courses. And there's there's currently a thing called the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, the Welcome Aboard the Ark, which Jordan Peterson and various other figures are promoting as you know an alternative. Yeah, the, the white guy was in the, the Nazi helmet, the, the German war helmet, and he was also doing a Roman salute when he was hailing a cab. The World Economic Forum and the, the UN. And we'll see how well that, that pans out. So, yeah, the, yeah, it's hard to over-exaggerate how strong anti-establishment sentiment is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not a difficult thing to prove because they are pretty upfront about <laughs> their contempt. So, Anthony Kamiya is not knee-jerk... You know, against the establishment, he he recognized that uh, the establishment, you know, frequently produced far better pilots than uh, than the affirmative action, you know, radical crowd. So Anthony Camilla, in many ways, much wiser, sounder person than traditional right wing pundits. For the corrupt. Um, totally compromised institutions. And they're also pretty upfront about the alternatives they're providing. Well, so I'm competing with Julie Hartman right now. She's doing a show, The Corruption of the Biden Family. She's only got four watching, and I am just flooded. I got 11 on YouTube, got about 10 on Rumble. So I've probably got about 25 viewers right now. I'm like 25 to four over Julie Hartman. Blessings to um, me. And they often speak explicitly about wanting to connect directly with with whatever young men or whatever to um to, to sort of educate them you know in the real science or the real real you know um, um, real knowledge uh, directly I, I think chris though like for me like a first dog they got for publicity this, this establishment posturing positioning is that it's almost a logical necessity like you mm. if you want to be a guru in, in in the modern world you can't just be like a normal public intellectual a normal historian a normal philosopher a normal scientist no. because you will be one of thousands and yeah. you will be saying things that are kind of boring <laughs> to, yeah. to, to most people like they in, in order to be an, alter, an influencer to, to attract attention online you need to take the contrarian stance and you know we've, we've seen in modern social media how how well that works in terms of uh, building a following yeah so the third characteristic um and i think this is one of the most 
central features that we've identified because we have 10 features um, and we haven't weighted them in the, uh, and the the kind of scoring that we do. But it is the case that there are some features which I think are more core. And this this one is, I think, at the core, and that is self-aggrandizement and narcissism. Um, this is kind of self-explanatory, but basically... Okay, so I, when I read Anthony Camille's autobiography, just very honest, no self-aggrandizement. I want to I go uh, play terrific. some of the view, if we uh, could. Uh, oh, yes, I know what it is. The view so talks about... Um, the uh, the Golden Globes and the diversity that need be uh, part of the Golden Globe. So they can't just talk about the Golden Globes uh, for entertainment value. There has to be a deeper meaning. And of course, it always has to come back to some slavery or oppression or, or shit. It's so fucking disgusting. Play this cunt. Having <laughs> taken off the air amid charges of severe lack of diversity, the Golden Globes returned to primetime last night with a lot to prove, and it wasn't lost on host Gerard Carmichael. No. Take a look. I'm here because I'm black. Yeah. One minute, yeah. you're making mint tea at home. The next, you're invited to be the black face of an embattled white organization. <laughs> <laughs> just clapped. Funny. Nailed it. Funny. funny. Did you see the show? No. Okay. I saw clips. Yeah. yeah. Just but clips. I mean, he's funny, but he's also telling the truth. Yeah. Which is why it's funny. Which is yeah. why it yeah. worked for that audience. Yeah. That audience that had been coming year after year, while there was no diversity, now, now they, they're there for diversity. I mean, maybe they should have spoken up a little sooner. Yeah, I was, yeah. I wanted to ask Whoopi, why was there no diversity with the foreign press. Like, like I understand our history oh, here in, in the United States and our history of 400 years of bondage and slavery. And But what about Europe, who never had slavery or oppression? Or, she's literally saying, she, she, if you didn't catch that, people, she's saying, uh, Whoopi, why hasn't there been uh, uh, diversity with the foreign press? Because that's what the Golden Globes are. It's like the foreign press. It's just France, it's isn't it? Whatever the fuck it is. And, and, and she can't fathom. She goes, now, I understand fucking shitty America with their history and years of oppression and that. But why the foreign press, who have always been so wonderful to the dark continent, and, and the, they have no clue. They honestly believe America is the be-all, end-all of horrible treatment of black people. She also, uh, I, I honestly believe that she thinks foreign, she thinks foreigner. So she thinks oh. it's like the United Nations. Oh, my God. And there's like an African guy. Right, right. A Peruvian guy. Well, how could there be oppression? Yeah, they are diverse. They're foreigners. Right, foreigners. It's like 80 rich French 80-year-olds. I think she thought they meant foreigner, the band, at <laughs> uh, Double Vision. <laughs> Turn me loose. It's got to be. That's Can I say something else? Please. I looked into this back when What's Your Name, Jada Pinkett Smith, said, uh, you Oscar's so white. My wife's name out your mouth. We looked it up, and about 14% of the Oscars go to blacks. Yeah. Black directors, black actors. That's so it's been perfectly diverse yeah. forever. Yeah. I mean, maybe Gone with the Wind was a little racist back then. Uh, okay. But even then, what's his name? Fucking the main guy in Gone with the Wind, uh, 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 Bogart or whoever it is. The uh, no, that's uh, Red Butler. Red Butler demanded Butler. that the Jamaican whatever made get to sit at his table. Yeah, even yeah. back in black and white days, we were fighting for equality. But anyway, I think the problem with these dumb cunts is they see all these commercials, and they're like, blacks are like 50% of the population. Yeah, they get fucking uh, brainwashed. By what the media and, and Madison Avenue are shoving down people's throats. And they go, well, if there's so many black people, why are they only 14% of the winners of the... Well, because they're 14% of the population. They think 14% is not represented. They don't know percentages, too. Yes. They only think 14% is half. If one in 10 people that win your thing are black, that's perfectly reasonable for America. It works. Uh, yeah, but Sorry. it can't be. It can't be. The host has to be black. Everyone that wins has to be black. It's to be 60 to 70% mm. black. It's crazy. This Golden Globes uh, Awards was unbelievably black. The winners, the, the fucking nominees. You recognize? Who the fuck was I that guy who was kind of funny? I don't know. Jordan Christensen? What the? Oh, no. Don't know. Stand up comic from Baltimore? They had the Cecil B. DeMille Award, and that was Eddie Murphy won that. Yes. For his work in uh, ah. the Clumps. <laughs> Fantastic. Where movie. he had the range to play yeah. a fat yeah. person and a skinny person, right, a little right. person and a lady. In that Pluto, whatever movie. Norbit? Norbit, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Norbit. <laughs> <laughs> Where he's a nagging yeah. wife yeah. and the cucked boyfriend. Yes. Starring Eddie Murphy and Eddie Murphy. They lampoon that so well in Tropic Thunder. Oh, yeah. Jack yeah. Black plays like the farts. Yeah. And they're always farting and being like, whoopsie. 
<laughs> so here, oh, the, the rest of uh, her little speech. Here. Structural inequities. But this was before in film, right? Or for a foreign body picking it. Why, why do you think there was no black representation? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Why the same reason might be no anything. It's the world that we live yeah. in. And, be honest, and now the same America to, you know, isn't the shit all that you say. It rectified it, and, and it's, it's, it's happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, what you're saying is, is, is that people should be woke. They're not. That's why they have to but, but the get pe- woke. But people, like, in other countries oh. look different. Like, I went to Ghana. There's what? Went to Ghana. I was right. She thinks foreign press is foreigner press. It's foreigner press. It's foreign people. And by the way, she goes, they look different. Not to the people that are there, you <laughs> dummy. She is being so elitist. She goes, I went to every place I went. They look different. Wouldn't they want people that look different? They don't look different. I went to Japan. They all look different. <laughs> every single person in Japan looks different. Yeah, Anthony Kimi is a pretty happy guy. I mean, credit to when him. When you're there, does rehab. it matter who you are? Like, is it a little nicer? Do you, do you get, like, all-star treatment? Or, or... They were pretty good. They were pretty fucking cool to me. I got to be honest. Uh, a few of them knew. Uh, who I was. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody, all the other inmates there knew who I was. <laughs> uh, uh, so that was, that was cool. Uh, um, but uh, you still got to do all your shit. It was a top end place. I mean, pool right by the beach in West Palm, uh, really nice facility. Uh, and then, you know, you had to go to some classes and, and group therapy, which was uh, really amazing. I'm not a, I'm not an emotion guy. Like I don't sit there and, and like seeing emotion play out. And there was literally grown men in their forties weeping, just uh-huh. weeping in a group atmosphere. And I want, I, I wanted to make an imprint like Bugs Bunny when he would go through a wall. Like, my body just <laughs> went into the room. I wanted out of there. Uh, yeah, that's awkward. Tough, yeah. So did they, now, was there anybody stuff- there who you were, like, looking at, like, fuck, that guy is is a dude who needs to be here probably the rest of his life. Like, anyone who is, like, I, I know with alcohol, at least you start shaking and you can go into, like, hallucinating and whatnot. Yeah. Like, it was, had to be a couple Dude, people. everyone else but me that was there <laughs> fit that criteria. Everyone else. There was a poor old guy who was, like, 69, 70 years old. And the first day there, they put him in art therapy. They come up with these therapies that are like, what? It's, again, adults. These are adults sitting in a room with construction paper with some <laughs> guy saying, okay, now draw this. And, you know, draw. I'm like, what the fuck? So he had the shakes so bad. Me and this girl that were there were looking. We're like, what's he drawing? I think it's a hacksaw blade. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so remember, what's the business model for rehab? Right, to make some improvement to your life, but not to cure you. Because if they cure you, if you make a genuine psychic change, there's no more business. So they just want to help you a little bit. But the business model is all about you coming back and coming back and coming back. That's how they make their money. All right. They, they don't make money if you go to 12-step programs. Nobody makes money from 12-step programs. But rehab, a right, ton of money to be made from rehab. But you don't get well in rehab. Right? You only get well when you have a fundamental psychic change, which will come about if you work the 12 steps seriously and you didn't have to pay any money to do that. Oh, it's an EKG. Every single, he couldn't draw a straight line. I felt bad for the guy. Oh, that's sad. But, yeah, yeah. I, mostly I felt bad for the people that were there um, for the first few days. And then I was just like, all right, whatever. I'm here for 28 days. Let me just uh, so deal with it. What was, the point of, what was the point of the five-day pre-therapy? Like, I don't think I understand how this works. Oh, my God. This is something called detox. To detoxify, they don't want to send people that are still all totally fucked up right into the uh, rehab facility. So you take uh, five days and you, they put you in a detox facility mm-hmm. and everybody there is coming off of something. So here's, here's what I did. Here's my, I've never been in anything like this situation uh, thing. I, it was like a Wednesday. I went out to dinner uh, with a, a girl and we had, uh, we split a bottle of wine. Then I had nothing to drink. My flight was on Friday. So Thursday I decided I was going to stay at home and watch um, clean and sober. 
and, and, and 28 days at Sandra Bullock. <laughs> I was going to watch rehab movies just to get a little, you know, glimpse. Yeah, yeah so Sandra Bullock would teach you what to expect. Uh-huh. <laughs> so then they send me, I, I go again, Friday comes along. I haven't had a drink since Wednesday. So I go and uh, get to the rehab and they give you a breathalyzer and it's zero, zero. So they're like, oh, well, you got to take some Xanax so you don't have a seizure from stopping drinking. And I'm like, <laughs> I really don't drink that much. I haven't, <laughs> I think I'm okay here. They go, no, it's the, the rules. You have to have it. I'm like, all right. So I took it. 20 minutes later, I'm on the couch like, I'm all kinds of fucked up. So I go in stone cold sober. Within 20 minutes of getting to rehab, I'm annihilated, fucked up on Xanax. It, it, it was amazing to me. And every time that door opened up for med time, though, I was right there. <laughs> now you got a serious Xanax problem. <laughs> We're showing up there lying like I'm feeling a little seizure Yeah. Like, Wait a minute. <laughs> So how do you pass the time for 28 days? I mean, do they give you like call of duty therapy? You just get to play all the time or like, what's up? Yeah, no, it sucked. They, they, I only have my phone like for two hours on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, they give you your phone. Mm. Uh, and I, I started just not even missing it. Like whatever. I'd get my phone, check some shit. And it wasn't like I sat on Twitter for eight hours. So it kind of worked out well. There was a pool there, which was great. Some really cool, fun people. Um, that one, oh, I, I guess. Fun. Yeah. Once they they're so the best party. The assholes as the stories <laughs> they told in group. I mean, they would tell stories like, like I never knew what a handle was. And they go, yeah, I was going through a handle a day. And yeah. I'm like, what is that? It's those bottles with the Captain handle on it, like a jug, a gallon of Captain Morgan or a gallon of vodka. And I'm like, yeah, I had those at parties at my house when a fuckload of people are coming over. But they were drinking like the whole thing alone. And some of these people are telling these stories. I'm just like, I don't, I don't have one of these. I don't have one of these. Stories. It would have been so funny to tell like your really lame story. You're like, well, <laughs> one night, oh, and I hate to even say this, like, I must have drank eight, nine beers. And I'm going to tell you, when I woke up the next day, oh, the headache. Yeah. Oh, I, had a headache. I couldn't I even eat until noon. Right. Yeah. yeah, I went to work. Oh, I you won't like believe this. Though. I was playing pool. Missed easy shots. Oh, yeah, 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 missed easy shots. <laughs> well, that's when I knew I had a problem. Did you immediately feel like, you know, the, the best person in class when you walked in and you see everybody shaking with their drawing and their pencils and you're like, oh, look at this guy. Oh, you need me to hold your saucer of tea yes. for you? Yeah, your steady yeah. hand over here. Like, they, they, they elected me uh, community president. So I had, to, I had to be there for like the meetings. I handed out the work details and stuff. And, no, uh, they didn't. Did they really? I can't tell if this is true or not. Dude, I swear. I swear. It was, I, I was like the president. <laughs> and then I had to give out like the reading assignments like because people would read aloud from the big AA book uh, during some of the uh, morning meetings. So I, I did that. I uh, had to you know, hand that out. So uh, yeah, I was El Presidente. Uh, I guess it was because I really wasn't all that fucked up when I went in there. Uh, yeah, so you immediately, that's a handle a day. Like if someone yeah. told you, I'll give you $10,000 a day for every day that you can drink a whole handle by yourself. <laughs> how many days do you think I you could even I, do? You would, I, I, first of all, I would probably die before I that. So, and yeah. I, you're passing out. You're not, I don't know how he did it. And then he said he broke one on the bathroom floor and got on the floor and started sucking it up. <laughs> As you do, yeah. <laughs> I, know. I, know. I, I grabbed the wrong beer off the table. <laughs> and I swallowed it anyway. Yeah. When I, I the whole thing and I realized I was drinking a course. When I was yeah. a child yeah. and not strong enough to pour a whole gallon of milk, that's how I cleaned the counter. Was, <laughs> I had a problem. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, and then I, you know, I got I got out uh, and then I came back to work and everyone's like, "Oh my god, you're so tan." And, <laughs> what about like, like the yeah. other stuff? Like, I, I have this notion, like, even if you didn't have a heavy alcohol addiction, did it cure your other addictions, like Reddit or Twitter or like I don't know something else? Did, like, talk Crazy to me. Broads. <laughs> like, dude, if that happened to me, I could, we could maybe kick my Reddit habit. Right. Even yeah, though, you know yeah. what? I did uh, take take in what was available and what might have helped with something. There's addictive personality. You know, I, I, I know I have that. And the fact that I was on Twitter eight hours arguing with nobody about nothing. Like, <laughs> with I, some I egg. Get a, a handle on a handle. On, 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 the were, were there any attractive women in, in rehab? Uh, a couple. Yeah, there was. But having sex in rehab is right below drinking. It's oh. right below drinking on. They will just throw you the fuck out. Kyle, of it. Really? those women tended to be over 21. We weren't interested. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> called old broads. Uh, no, 
there were a couple of uh, goers there, you know, a couple of girls that were pretty fucking uh, kind of cute and uh, wanted to, to do stuff. Yeah, uh, I bet for a fifth they'd have done anything. Yeah, yeah, you just like bring in a little coke with you and. Uh, yeah. But having sex food. is like a big offense. I don't really uh, get it's why. It's huge. Like they really made sure nothing was going on. One girl, she decided she was gonna, um, like I was in the pool like this, and she swam up like upside down backwards, up like that. And oh, just, like, this to the me. old scissor stroke. And we I did it in college. Off. I'm like, like we're in fucking rehab. What are you doing? And uh, she's like, well, no one ever pushed me off of them before. What the fuck? I'm like, it's rehab. They go, believe me, any other place. <laughs> great, but, uh, no, no, we can't do that. And then, like, they found out about that and talked to me. They were like, we heard there was an incident at the pool. And so I was like, look, we talk, everything's cool. No fucking report is necessary. Don't but you hate it when they refer to something you did as an incident? An incident, yes. Yeah, you're like, shit, it wasn't really an incident. Let me explain how this all went down. Incident always has this negative connotation where, like, you yes. were up to no good, making dirty plans. Like, you had yeah. a scheme. Incident. Well, there were some girls that would uh, hang out on the couch in the, the room where there was the TV and everything, the community room, and there were blankets in there. So a guy and a girl would put a blanket over them and just diddle each other and fucking you know, play with each other and shit. So that became something you couldn't sit close to a, another person. In Florida, you say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Typically, I think of that as the airplane move. Yep. Yeah. There were a lot of, you know, there's another girl that was there that wound up fucking one of the guys that were there uh, with a girl keeping lookout. It was, you know, people do what they want if uh, they want to. I, uh, I, I can't imagine being in that situation. I really like my freedom. I really like the ability to be like, you know what? Fuck all this. I'm going out and just getting my, get in my car and go. That's uh, what I do. And it freaked me out, especially at first. I'm like, I really don't. And not to mention, I had a fucking roommate. So, so I wasn't even in the room alone. I, I've never had like a roommate in the same fucking room. And you know, I had to do some little chores, you know, not the toilet cleaning stuff, but make sure your bed's made and things like that. I'm like, I, I haven't made my bed in decades. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, I forgot. Oh. Was, was there security? Like technically, if you wanted to just walk out the front door, would you get there or are there like yeah, you, could, you could leave, but you know, you'd be uh, Big... AMA against medical advice. They, they call it. And uh, you know, and it's just counterproductive, especially to what I was doing. But yeah, so it's not yeah, like there. a prison where you literally you would have a hard time Sometimes leaving. Sometimes it is, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes it is. This one, like they, they had some rules, like uh, no food in the rooms whatsoever. You gotta keep it in the kitchen and write your name on it and hope no one stole your shit. Uh, but people stole people's shit all the time. So, I, and I had things that I just wanted to kind of at night, you know, get up, go into my drawer and grab like a uh, fucking beef jerky or some shit like that. So I kept a lot of stuff in my drawers and the guy would say, Contraband. oh, we're gonna be looking at rooms today. Make sure you don't have any food in there and make sure everything's clean. So I was like, oh fuck. So I, t I took the food out of my drawers. I put it in my laundry basket and covered it with laundry and then took some like underwear and put it on top to see if, like, hopefully he wouldn't go through it. And he didn't. So, you know, that was the trick that worked. So, <laughs> like, well, I thought he was going to take a stick and start, like, <laughs> he comes in, up against the wall. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, tossing the cells. They're tossing the cells. Guys <laughs> mopping. I'm making fucking booze in the toilet. Little kites <laughs> tossing them through the yeah. other doors. What says you, fuzzy britches? He throws a fucking chess piece that goes through the wall. <laughs> was it, uh, Great all movie. drugs? Yeah. Like, not alcohol, other drugs? Or were there, like, also fat people there who, like, were having trouble with eating or, like, I just wonder what uh, kind of addictions were they all? Yeah, there, I think the peripheral stuff, like being fat or having a, you know, OCD, that kind of was in there, but not as that. It was like a fat person with a drug problem. So you're concurrent clapping and tapping from the adjacent building, the OCD. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we would. Uh, you look over at night, the lights are just on, off, on, off. See the locks, like just damn it, lights out, it's dead. I need to do it five more times. One, two, three, four, five. I just one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, it's just like going crazy, trying to trying to make sure the doors lined up right, the doors opening. <laughs> Some lunatic. The big day was when we went to uh, we got to go to Walmart on Saturday. That was your big party right there. Uh, they would load us into this white van, these white vans that they affectionately called the druggy buggies. I like it. Yeah, yeah. I, I had to get into something called the druggy buggy, which I felt uh, just great about. And then uh, we'd go to Walmart, and they kind of keep an eye on you as to what you were buying. Uh, but if they, even if they weren't, at the end when you got everything, you had to hand your receipt over to the the guy to make sure you weren't buying anything you weren't supposed to be buying. And uh, some people would like ring up one thing, like a bottle of NyQuil, and uh, stash it, 
and get the receipt for that and then ring up all the rest of their stuff wow. and then have NyQuil to drink. Yeah. Uh, Man, you gotta yeah. be desperate to be sneaking NyQuil. NyQuil. <laughs> Are you just really congested? Oh, I know. That's how, <laughs> after after this. That's how they kind of, because uh, as we were, I was talking with other people, they started saying like, are you really here for drinking or anything? Like, you don't really seem, I was like, yeah, well, and then we were talking about NyQuil and I said, oh yeah, I love that stuff. It just fucks me up. I fall right to sleep. And they go, oh, see, so you're not fucking Mr. Squeaky Clean. I was like, no, when I'm sick, <laughs> I would take fucking NyQuil. I have some at home now. I don't have, I'm not compelled to fucking chug it down. Oh, oh, I gotta handle it. Like, you have NyQuil? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's holding out on us? Yeah. Right, you gotta understand the incentives. The whole incentives for, for rehab, the whole business model is based on getting people to come back again and again and again and again and again. That's how you make your money. If you cure people, right? If you put them on a sustainable path to recovery, they're not gonna come back. You're not gonna make any money. You're gonna make a lot more money you can hook them in, give them a modest amount of recovery, but don't cure them, right? You want to get cured, join a 12-step program and work at fair dinkum. <laughs> they were talking about hiding, like, bottles. Their wives were there with mothers that have kids and husbands that they just, like, booze was more important than their family. And they were going to, you know, they'd be crying after a week going, I want to see my, my kids and my husband. And you're like, what the fuck are you even doing here? I understand it's a, an addiction, and that's the whole thing. It's very bad and pulls you right in, but my God, man. It's not like you're just a shock jock from the radio that <laughs> ran into the, al the alcohol thing is serious stuff. Like that's a disease. And, and you know, it, it's one of those diseases that actually has some effect. You get cirrhosis of the liver. There's all kinds of things that it'll kill you literally, or it can ruin your brain. It can just make you a uh, Yeah, the goal of rehab is to build your health insurance. And thanks to Obamacare, every single type of health insurance has to have the ability to pay at least $2,000 a day for you to go to rehab, right? Even the least expensive form of health insurance has that. $2,000 a day for rehab. Uh, a hollowed out version of your former self after long-term use. But yeah. I kind of want to go there to make fun of the people who are there for like laughable things like the, the OCD or, or the fat people because I'm fat not people, yeah. yeah, I would love to just be able to like, like go, go to fat people rehab to lose like eight pounds or something. Like, yeah, it's, you know, swimsuit, swimsuit season's coming oh, up. Uh, if people are going there, right, in, in all likelihood, their life is at risk. So uh, on the one hand, I understand from a nihilistic perspective, it's all very funny. But for people with disabling addictions, whether it's under-owning, overspending, uh, sex, porn, drugs, alcohol, right, it uh, puts your life at risk. Because if for even five seconds, two seconds, when you're driving a car, you, you start to lose your hold on life and you start to think, ah, wouldn't it be easier if I just got into a mild to, to moderate accident right now so I can just rest for, for a week or two, right? If you just have that type of thinking for one second, Right, you can very easily get into a car accident that kills you. And you see that in the British TV show Fleabag, which is on Amazon Prime, where this girl just wants to get back together with her ex-boyfriend. So she deliberately walks out into traffic, hoping that she'll just get hit a little bit, have to go to the hospital, and then her ex-boyfriend will come visit her. But instead, she gets killed. So you lose your, your dedication to, to life for even one second. And it's a lot easier to do when you've got some, you know, destructive habit compulsion pattern in your life you lose your hold on life for one second all right you're much more vulnerable to putting yourself in a position where you end it all all right eat your vegetables a little bit more here on the components of the secular guru from the podcast decoding the gurus exhibiting a sense of grandiosity and inflated idea of your own self-importance touting your unique perspective and how revolutionary it is um responding to any mostly preferring probably positive attention but any attention really will, will do to you know provide some uh, 
some psychological stroke. And one indicator of this is that you can see the guru figures who are often hugely successful people. They've got massive audiences, they're best-selling books, they're uh, sought out to commentate on various issues, well, at least the, the more successful versions of them, but yet they are often stating how many people watch their talks, how many downloads things get, and, and referencing it in a way which suggests there's like a pathological attention to that detail. Um, and, and basically it reflects that they are very much enamored with their own ideas, very bad at assessing them objectively, and, and often also believing that they were gifted with special insight from an early age, which was often misdiagnosed as learning uh, disabilities. So they, they have a special way of seeing the world, and uh, they are special people. Yeah, you're muted. And, um... Oh, you're not, not anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we don't have time to get into the like this. The study of manipulative narcissism is really well established, and there it's really well understood all the different behaviors that are red flags in this. But just to note a couple, like one of them is being like extremely sensitive to praise and, and criticism, and also being someone who tries to manipulate others by doling out selective praise and criticism. Um, the uh, the uh, another aspect of people. Right, the more sensitive you are to praise. It and to criticism, right? The, the more narcissistic you are. This is situational. In some situations, you're going to be much more sensitive to, to praise or criticism, but it indicates you have a problem the more sensitive you are to praise and to criticism. With the narcissistic personality issues um, is, is that just tremendous thin skin, you know, that <laughs> extreme reactivity. Um, so, you know, we, we tend to see these characteristics in the people we cover. The final thing I'll say, Chris, is that, again, it's theoretically quite satisfying that narcissism does crop up so often in these figures because you almost have to have, uh, an overblown sense of self-confidence in, in order to inhabit this role, like, to, like to, to, to put on a toga or a white sheet and stand up on top of the mountain. Well, I expect that uh, Anthony Camille has an oversized level of self-confidence, but he doesn't have an inflated sense of his own intellectual capabilities, right? From reading his book and listening to his clips, seems very much far more in reality than most syndicated right-wing talk show hosts and pundits. And to, and to broadcast to everyone that you've heard the word of God, and it is this, requires the kind of self-belief <laughs> that you know most typical people don't generally have so um so yeah um it is it is a feature that we we see pretty reliably in our more toxic gurus mm. so you you brought up there matt this uh sense that you are an aggrieved person right who's constantly being persecuted and attacked by others uh, by others and that uh, leads neatly to uh, another characteristic that we identify grievance mongering so this this can sometimes be indicated by that you know all of the person's enemies because they constantly mention them. They regard the media, institutions, politicians, so on, all to be kind of targeted against them and to unfairly represent them. Um, I think another aspect of this that is really common amongst the gurus is that th their critics are all arguing in bad faith. They're all offering low-quality criticism of their ideas, and they are really heroic, see themselves as heroic figures fighting back against this kind of onslaught, onslaught of, of bad faith criticism and, and relentless attacks from the media who are trying to shut them down for all the reasons that we just um, talked about. And this conveniently gives an explanation for why they may lack mainstream success. So it, it may be the case that they are hugely successful like Jordan Peterson, um, but even if they aren't, there's a ready-made narrative for why you know, their, their success is less than it could be because you have, when, when combined with narcissism, it will never be enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's striking, isn't it? The degree to which some of our gurus seem to be obsessed with the, like the number of likes and retweets that they're getting on social media. And they, they seem to be absolutely certain that, that, that some nefarious forces out there are throttling them or suppressing them and preventing the word from getting out. On, on Twitter, um, they, they looked to Elon Musk for a long time. And well, when Elon Musk gets in, then I'll be, I'll be free of this, of these suppressive forces. And, um, but of course that 
that the, like the psychological disorder doesn't go away just when Elon Musk buys Twitter. Mm. I have a great example of that because I don't know if you've seen, but Cat Turd Two is very upset that he has not been part of you know the monetization um, payouts, and he's now like kind of you know malingering to his audience about how all those people getting payouts it's just because they're lick spittles of Elon, but he wouldn't do that. So, but you know he has been doing that for months and months. So it's just that it's always a kind of fragile. Uh, truce amongst yeah. the, the gurus whenever they're fawning after someone, right? And uh, yeah. it, it can very I, I, quickly disintegrate. I, look, this is uh, like, you know, we're going to talk about conspiracism and cultish dynamics, but, you know, this narrative of grievance is something that has a lot of overlap with those pieces of the barometer too. Um, cults notoriously have a sense of grievance with the broader society. You know, they, 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 they very quickly tend to get the idea that everyone's out to get them and, and, and it's us versus them. And that, that us versus them mentality, um, you know, fosters those toxic in-group, out-group dynamics, as well as that it puts, you know, when it's personalized in the form of a guru, it obviously puts them in like a heroic role, someone who's standing up to, to all of these, you know, um, uh, forces. And in terms of the conspiracy theories, again, um, we see, um, you know, strong, uh, themes of of grievance there at, at the you know the the authorities the the them that are out there that are that are hiding the truth and doing these terrible things to us. Um, so it's okay. Let's uh, leave it there for tonight. Talk to you later. Bye bye.